First Peter chapter four, verse twelve, reading through to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the Lord's word. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time has come... The judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Amen. God will add his blessing to that reading from his word to our souls for his name's sake. Would you bow with me for a moment in prayer? Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, it is in Jesus' name that we come once again to this mercy seat. Thy mercy endureth forever. That's the testimony of this book. And we pray, Lord, that we will have abounding mercy shown us in this worship service, in the preaching and hearing, the understanding, the receiving, and the loving of the Word of God. Grant it, we pray. May there be a, a, a power to do what we hear not just to acknowledge it's the truth, but, Lord, to live the truth that we acknowledge to be true. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. As we come to this last section of chapter 4, you see afresh the truth that the Holy Spirit is never, ever concerned with repeating himself in Scripture. One of the simple theological facts about the Holy Ghost in the giving of Scripture is that he is never redundant. There's no doubt that in the basic meaning of the word, he is repetitive, but he is never redundant. If something is redundant, it's unnecessary. It's superfluous. It could easily be omitted without making any difference in God's Word. 
But that could never be a truthful and accurate description of anything God has written in His Word. Whatever the Holy Spirit gave these holy men of God to write was absolutely necessary. The law of the Lord is perfect. In both the Old and New Testaments, the Holy Spirit has made it clear that nothing is to be added to the Word of God. Nothing is to be taken away from the Word of God because it is perfect. There's no redundancy. And if there was redundancy, it would be imperfect. And it was Christ who went so far as to say that every jot and tittle will be fulfilled. The jot is the Hebrew letter Yod. It's the smallest Hebrew letter. And the tittle is a little tiny mark that distinguishes what we would call a B from a D in the Hebrew alphabet. Just a little tiny mark. Therefore, if every jot and tittle is necessary, then every word is necessary. Nothing is superfluous, and the Holy Ghost is never redundant. But he does repeat things. I don't just mean that you can find some truth repeated numerous times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can. But I mean that he will repeat himself within the scope of a handful of verses. He'll say the same thing. That's what we have going on before us this morning in this last section of of chapter 4. After dealing with how Christians are to actually treat each other as far as living in light of eternity is concerned, Peter returns, or should I say the Holy Spirit, returns once again to the theme of suffering. It's like you saying you haven't heard enough yet. There's, I want to tell you again what I've already told you. In every chapter we've studied thus far, and it'll be true of chapter 5, the Apostle has written to them about the sufferings that had become such a focal point in their lives. And whatever, whenever Peter's had something to say about their sufferings, it always hasn't been something new that he's had to say. He's repeated himself because, as I said, the Holy Spirit has repeated himself. And so that has brought me to a place in this series of messages where, at least in part, I will be going over territory that we've already covered. But if the Spirit of God thought it was needful to be repeated... You and I shouldn't have any problem with that repetition. We shouldn't think for one moment that this is redundant. It's unnecessary. What we find from verse 12 to the end of this chapter is a directory. Long before that word was used to refer to a list of alphabetical names in a phone book or to the organization of 
files and folders on a computer's hard drive. It was used to refer to a book of directions to be used by Christians in their worship. For example, if you own a copy, a full copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, you will find a section entitled The Directory for the Public Worship of God. And then there is another section that's entitled The Directory for Family Worship. So what we really have here in this last section of chapter 4, and this is really the title of my my message that's covering this section, is a directory for Christian suffering for their faith. A directory of Christian suffering for their faith. I'm sure you have some recollection of the description I gave you of what these believers were facing at the hands of the Roman Empire just because they were Christians. Just because they were Christians. Not for anything they had done, but just because they said, I am a Christian. What Nero and the emperors that followed him did in persecuting the church defies description. In his book, Persecution in the Early Church, H.B. Workman wrote this, For 200 years from Nero on, and that's the emperor alive when Peter's writing this epistle, from 200 years from Nero on, the leaders among the Christians were branded as anarchists and atheists and hated accordingly. For 200 years to become a Christian meant the great renunciation, the joining of a despised and persecuted sect, the swimming against the tide of popular prejudice, the coming under the ban of the empire, the possibility at any moment of imprisonment and death under its most fearful forms. For 200 years, he that would follow Christ must count the cost and be prepared to pay the same with his liberty and life. For 200 years, the mere profession of Christianity was itself a crime. Christianus sum, I am a Christian, was almost the one plea for which there was no forgiveness in itself, all that was necessary on the back of the condemned as a title. For the name itself meant the rack, the blazing shirt of pitch, the lion, the panther, or in the case of maidens, an infamy worse than death. That's what they were facing. Suffering. But we're not living in those times now. There is no Nero. There is no Domitian. No Trajan. No rack, no lions, no boiling vats of oil. 
We live in a nation where religion is protected by the Constitution. Yes, but we also live in a nation that has rejected God's Word. That is growing leaps and bounds in its animosity toward Christianity. And is setting the stage for the entrance of Antichrist. Nero is gone, but Satan is alive and well. We need to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. We need this directory. These directions about how we are to respond to suffering, particularly suffering for our faith. It's growing, and it'll continue to grow. Christians having to pay the price for their faith. In this directory for Christian suffering, for their faith, the first direction, and the only one I will get into this morning, that the Holy Spirit gives them is this. First direction, expect it. Expect it. Verse 12, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. You'll see that Peter uses the word strange twice. Not the same word, very closely related, but not the same word. The root word is xenos. Uh, the word you might know is xenophobia. The fear of strangers or fear of aliens. That's the root word. Think it not strange. That's just two words in the Greek. Uh, one of those two words is a negative particle, negating the verb. Literally, be not astonished. Don't be surprised. Expect it. To put it another way, Peter is saying, know that as sure as the sun is going to rise tomorrow, you are going to face suffering for your faith. You can count on it. It's not simply a possibility. It's going to happen. Notice what he calls this suffering that they must expect as Christians the fiery trial which is to try you. The fiery trial, literally, it's the burning. The burning which is coming, here's the literal, the burning which is coming to test, to prove you. Now, the choice of words to me is fascinating. Because that was one of the common methods of torture. Burning them. Broiling them slowly. Slowly. 
Of course, when Peter refers to the burning which is coming to test them, he's alluding to the intense heat that arose from the fire in the furnace of a metal refiner. It was in the fiery furnace that the refiner accomplished two things. First, he tested the genuineness of the metal that he put into his pot, whether it was or not it was truly precious metal. And secondly, he increased the purity of any precious metal by burning away its dross. It was twofold, basically. Now, that fact right there tells us, does it not, a great deal about just what Peter was telling them and what the Holy Ghost is telling us to expect when it comes to suffering and when it comes to suffering for our faith. First, we should expect the suffering to be severe. The Holy Spirit doesn't use the heat of an ordinary fire to show this, but to the intense, concentrated heat of the refiner's fire. It's a furnace. We are considering in the past Sunday evenings this great cloud of witnesses that Paul mentions in Hebrews 11. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And he was writing that to Hebrew believers who are facing the same kind of treatment by the world. That whole story was repeated again in Peter's day, where death by hanging, broiling them, burning them at the stake, and stoning Christians was very common. Christianus sum, I am a Christian, was all it took. It meant something to say, I'm a Christian. Just about everything imaginable and some things unimaginable were used to try and destroy Christianity. And you can easily understand why the Holy Spirit used the burning, the fiery trial, to describe the severity of the suffering that they would have to face. He's giving them the heads up. Expect this. This is not going to be a picnic. Jesus Christ said that you sit down and you count the cost. Because it's high. But you can also just as easily understand why, why these believers in the early church felt that the suffering that they were facing was not only painful, but it was so unexpected. You, you, you can see why they, their, their initial reaction would be, this is unbelievable. 
We weren't expecting this. This is shocking. When you remember what they were having to face. After all, you know, as you will recall back from chapter, the opening verses of chapter 2, many of them, so many of them were newborn babes. They were new Christians. They weren't seasoned believers. They hadn't been through all kinds of storms and struggles. Why, why, would, the, why would our Father put, put us through this? We've just been saved. Would the natural thinking not be, does God not love us? Would the question not arise, is he not able to restrain the evil, the wickedness of these men? Surely he is. He's God. He's almighty. He can do whatever he wants to do, but he's not doing it. So why Why is he permitting us to go through this depth of suffering? So Peter tells him, don't you be shocked. Don't you be surprised at the intensity, at the severity of what you're facing. You should expect it. And why why should they expect these fiery trials? And why should you and I expect them? Why shouldn't we be surprised? And why shouldn't we be astounded and shattered when they come? We shouldn't be. Suffering when it comes, whether through persecution or nothing to do with persecution, we should not be shattered by it when it comes. Shocked by it. But why? In the first place, because when it comes to the world, this is exactly what Christians should expect from the world. Nothing is more opposed, nothing is more opposed to the spirit of the world than the spirit of Christianity. Nothing. The thing that's really surprising isn't that there's been so much persecution against the church, but but there hasn't been more persecution than there's been against the church. That's what's really surprising. What's really surprising is that we are able to meet here without being persecuted with this open Bible before us. The Holy Ghost, you see, the Holy Ghost is the great restrainer of evil in the world. 
And had he not restrained, and does not, and, and if he did not carry on this ongoing work of restraining the wickedness of evil men, the world would have wiped Christianity off the face of the earth long ago. If he hadn't held them back. Don't you know that, that would have been us all along the devil's goal? Destroy it? The Lord Jesus said in John 15, If ye, to his disciples, if ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because, because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world hates Christians. It doesn't matter. It, this is the world. This is, this is Christ, the Son of God, speaking absolute truth. He wasn't exaggerating. It wasn't a half-truth. The world hates you. And so the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now that's a pretty graphic description. You know what the wolf will do to the sheep. It will rend it in pieces. That's the picture. What would be shocking, what would be so surprising is to see the world love God's people. And to help us along in our venture, in our work. Now that would be shocking. But what Christian in the right mind expects that? That the world is our friend, our helper, that'll support God's people. The word of the Lord frequently describes Christians as children of light. What kind of treatment would you expect from those who are the children of darkness? If we are the children of light. They're not compatible. But men, John says, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And when Christians who are, according to Christ himself, the light of the world, when we live in this world as Christians are to live, our light shines. And guess what it does? It exposes the evil deeds, the depravity of the wicked. And they want their sin to be hidden. So Christians 
should expect this kind of treatment. And Peter's telling him, you should expect this from the world. But Christians should also expect the suffering, whether for their faith or not. They should expect the suffering and not view them as strange or astounding because in the second place, these fiery trials, these sufferings are necessary for the church. They're necessary for the Lord's people. It's needful. I tell you, if it wasn't needful, it wouldn't be happening. There's never a fiery trial that will come into your life that wasn't needful. I trust that, although this is not one of those amening congregations, it doesn't bother me at all, I hope you're saying amen in your own soul. Every fiery trial that in, comes into my life is something that I need. It's necessary for me. And if it's needful for me, I should expect it. Because my God is only going to do for me and with me what is necessary. He never does anything unnecessary. It's required. Now, if we thought more like that, would, would we be surprised? Would, would, would we respond to the suffering as, that blew me away. That shattered me. I didn't see that coming. Why not? Why not? Since you have already acknowledged that any fiery trial that comes, it's needful. Peter, as I said, he repeats himself. He actually said back in chapter 1, verse 6, that they're being in deep sorrow through all kinds of trials was necessary. And, and why are seasons of such intense suffering needed in the church? Well, think now, now, think now about the refiner's fire that he's alluding to here and the purpose of the refiner and bringing the metal into the heat. In the first place, he does this to distinguish the genuine from the counterfeit. The refiner's given metal to prove whether or not it was precious metal or something that only looked like it was precious metal. The intense heat of the furnace was used to prove whether or not it was the real article or fake. And when Peter says that the fiery trial comes to try, he says to try you, it is to prove you, prove you, that's part of what he's getting at. The history of the Christian faith shows that there have been seasons in church history, when many have come into the visible church, 
and claimed to be Christians, quote-unquote, but they were Christian in name only. They were not Christians by how they lived. Name, but not by life. Profession, but not a confession with the life that they were truly Christians. To the degree that such unsaved, unwashed, unchanged men have influence in the church because they have come in, to that degree the church's life and the church's purpose in the world has suffered. It's never been good. The effects have been bad because of that. That happened when the Roman Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be the state religion somewhere around 300 A.D., 315, I think. They came in like a flood. This is, I mean, you got benefits. This is the state religion. They swelled the ranks of the church. But it can also be clearly seen from that point in time, the spiritual life of the church declined. Why? Because you had ungodly, unsaved, unrepentant men and women in the church wielding influence on decisions and truth and doctrine that was being taught. It hurt the church. That has happened many a time when the church has experienced external prosperity, popularity of a church, programs, politics, etc., etc. The result is that the ungodly have entered her visible ranks. And if that went on and on, unchecked by God, it would end up perverting the church and leaving it in its wake a worldly church not a Christian church and so one of the methods that God has ordained to use to purify his church is the fiery trials You'll not stick around when the burning comes if you're a phony. You just won't stick around. The heat is too intense. Jesus gave the heads up about this. In the parable of the sower... He that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself? He's not saved. The root of the matter is not in him. He hath not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. And he walks away. Tribulation and persecution was the method that God took 
It was the fiery trial. Paul's writing to Hebrews, Hebrew believers. That's the very thing that had happened. Hebrews chapter 6, you can read about it there. They had enjoyed so many privileges externally, but they ended up abandoning Christ. They walked away. Why? Because trouble came. Because it involved a cost, and it was high, that had to be paid. In essence, they were saying, Christianity? Jesus Christ? It's not worth it. Christ is not worth this trouble. My salvation is not worth all this. That's one side of that truth. The refiner puts the metal in the fire to prove what's genuine and what's fake. We should expect, therefore, the fire to be hot. Really hot. But the Lord would purify his people. But the fiery trial not only proves the the counterfeit, but it purifies the genuine. It purifies those who really belong to the Lord. That's the other side of it. You see, this, this, this fire that proved the metal to be false, not precious at all, it actually proved the preciousness of the real metal. And this is real. But it did something more. It burned away the dross that was there, increasing the value of the metal. Suffering, persecution, has always had that purifying influence on the Lord's people. And I see it it makes perfect sense to me that this is what we're seeing starting to return once again is the persecution of Christians. Because there is a purifying that needs to take place. A cleansing. Getting rid of the dross. That perhaps at this moment isn't even viewed by Christians as dross. Not even seeing that this is dross. You see, I hope, I hope, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that all of you would agree with me. There's plenty of dross in every Christian that needs to be removed. Every one of us. I mean, all you'd have to, you know, an assignment, go home and take out more than a few sheets of paper and begin to write down your sins. Just write them down. 
and, and, and highlight the sins that keep getting repeated. Well, there's draws. But not only is there dross that needs to be removed, but there are graces and there are gifts that God has given to us in our life, and those graces and those gifts need to grow, to mature, develop more of them. That would especially be true of the believer's faith. Because I, I, I say this because as faith, as faith grows, as faith matures, everything else grows and matures. Everything else. Love grows, matures. Joy grows and matures. Peace grows and matures. Long-suffering grows and matures. Patience grows and matures. All of this Christ-likeness grows and matures as faith grows and matures. All you have to do, and I've told you this so many times for so many years, go to Second Peter chapter 1, somewhere along verse 7 or 8, I think. Add to your faith, and it begins to list those graces. But faith is the starting point. You, you can understand why if your faith is growing, if the faith is increasing, you're going to know more love in your life. Because you're going to believe more and more that the Lord loves me. Me. It won't just be a tenet of your faith. It'll be a reality in your life. The Lord actually, you believe the scripture when it says we love him because he first loved us. And my, the Lord loves me. That'll be the basis for you loving others. Smallness of faith, you see, has a hard time with that. Hard time. Your faith grows. You can understand why your joy is going to grow, right? The things that are robbing you of joy, the fears. Oh, no, I I don't need to be afraid. I believe the God of this Bible. I believe his promises. I believe Romans 8, 28. And I can rejoice. And I will rejoice. But that's all done by faith. The same will follow the peace of mind. Faith, as it grows, the peace grows. Just go down the fruit. The point that Peter has already made and continue to make is that faith grows the most and grows the strongest when it has to be exercised. Yeah, I, I know I'm repeating myself. I've said this many times. There's nothing like a fiery trial. There is nothing like suffering for your faith that will grow your faith. There's nothing like it. Back in chapter 1 of this epistle, verse 7, Peter said that the trial of your faith 
This is what's on trial here. That the trial of your faith, though it be tried with fire. I'll tell you something. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exercised a great degree of faith when they told King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow before your image. Whether or not God delivers us, we are not going to bow to it. That, that, that took some faith. But you can be dead on sure that their faith grew leaps and bounds after that fiery furnace. Oh, they had faith, all right. But can you imagine after going through that and the Lord being seeing and learning the Lord was with them in the fire, what that did to strengthen their faith and to deepen their faith? I... If, if, if that's how it is with the fiery furnace everything's alright what do you think happened with Daniel's faith after he refused to stop praying and was thrown into the den of lions what do you think happened to his faith after he came out of that pit Whew. I can only imagine how strong his faith must have become. But that would not have happened apart from the persecution, the fiery trial. That's why James said, and I'm sure you could quote it with me, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying, the testing, the proving of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work, her completing work, that you might be perfect and entire, complete, wanting or lacking nothing. I, I know you've heard it all before, but the Holy Spirit knows you've heard it all before as well. And he's the one who is repeating himself in chapter 4. He's already talked about the fiery trial being necessary, but he's saying it again here. Expect it. It's needed. And I think it's the repetition is for good cause. I believe if we were just dead honest with ourselves and with each other... What we want, we want greater faith without having the greater trials. Amen. We want a deeper trust in God and His Word without having our faith tested by deeper trials and deeper suffering. We want to wake up with it. We wanted to come just through hearing the sermons each week and reading our Bibles and our times of prayer, being obedient to the Lord's Word. We just, we want that deeper, stronger faith to come that way. And folks, that's not what this is saying. It comes through intense trials. 
this. We've sung this hymn numerous times. One of my favorites for a prayer meeting service. Oh, for a faith that will endure, though pressed by many a foe. A faith that always stands secure through every earthly woe. That will not murmur nor complain beneath the chastening rod. But in the hour of grief or pain, leans upon its God. A faith that shines more bright and clear when tempests rage without. That when in danger, knows no fear. In darkness, feels no doubt. In the last stanza, he says, Lord, give me such a faith as this, and then, whate'er may come, I'll taste e'en here the hallowed bliss of an eternal home. His prayer, give me a faith like that. No doubt in the darkness. A faith that shines brightly in a raging tempest. Give me a faith like that. Well, I ask a question. And just how will the Lord give that kind of faith? How do you think he will answer that kind of prayer? Oh, he will bring you closer to Christ. The source of all your faith. Interesting that it's called several times in the New Testament the faith of Christ. I live by the faith of the Son of, of the Son of God. He will bring you closer to Christ. There won't be any growth in faith apart from that. He'll answer your prayer by drawing you deeper into his word. For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. For faith to grow, it must be brought to the word. He'll bring you into your prayer closet. He will help your unbelief. But how, how will he do that is the question. By bringing you into a hot burning furnace that will prove you have real faith in God. And that real faith, because it is genuine faith, it will take you to Christ who is always the object of our faith. See, it's, it's, it's the fiery trial that will drive us to Christ. I said he'd bring you there. And it will be that fiery trial that will drive you to the Word. Some, some truth, some promise from God 
and you'll find it was just the promise you needed in the trial. Now your faith in his word increases. And it will be that fiery trial that will drive you to the place of prayer where you will find yourself crying to God, Lord, I believe, but help, please help my unbelief. You know I can't do this on my own. Help me, Lord. And the Lord will hear that cry. And he will help you. He will use that fiery trial of suffering and sorrow to increase your faith in him. What you will realize when it's all said and done, when it's all past, I was trusting God. I was looking to the Lord. I wasn't looking to anybody else to help me. All I had was his promise. And he helped me. Ah, so my faith grew. All of that being true, Why would Christians be surprised when the fire trials come? The Lord write that word on our hearts for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord. O our God and Father, we echo the words of that hymn writer, O for such a faith as this, We understand Peter's cry to the Savior, help increase my faith. We understand the cry of that father with his son wallowing in the dirt, demon possession, Lord, help my unbelief. We thank thee, Lord, that thou hast so ordained things to be that the just shall live by faith. Save us, Lord from making the Christian life far more complicated than it is found in thy word. For the simple faith of a child. Lord, we pray, give us this faith. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.